Well, nearly 370 years ago, uh, an English pastor's sermons on the topic of contentment were posthumously published as a now classic work entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In this book, Pastor Jeremiah Burroughs, that's a nice English name, isn't it? Old school. Uh, he gives this pristine definition of Christian contentment. Uh, he, he writes this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read that one more time. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's fatherly, God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Isn't that amazing? First of all, isn't it amazing that you can understand it almost 400 years ago and, and you can still understand it? You know, all these people who say that you need a new Bible translation every five years because the language changes. Anyway, sorry, that's my little side rant. But what a beautiful definition of Christian contentment. And the rest of this book, I encourage you to obtain it, is a very practical, uh, he, he breaks it down uh, proposition by proposition and fleshes it out. It's very good. But that's a beautiful definition of Christian contentment. Have you ever had the pleasure of knowing someone like that? They are great to be around. They are. And they make God look awesome, don't they? It's been my goal in this entire mini-series to get us to the point where we are able to say, in the face of all that our experience has taught us, to say in the face of that, contentment is possible. It is indeed possible to be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself. And it's not just some pie-in-the-sky notion for so-called super-Christians. You, even you, can be content. And so in this little mini-series, going back almost a month when we started, a month ago when we started, in our first message, we began by looking at the problem and the prevalence of discontent. We talked about how discontentment really does seem to characterize the human experience. Oh yeah, we get fleeting temporary glimpses of content, but contentment, but really humans exist more or less with a chronic discontentment that plagues our existences. And we learned in that message that our discontentment is really not produced by circumstances. We want to be able to blame our discontentment on our nagging wife, on our unsupportive husband, on our jerk boss, on our ridiculous politicians, on the economy, on, on my, my, my physical afflictions, on the climate, on, on, on the humidity. We want to blame our discontentment on anything. And everything. But we saw that Paul teaches us that our contentment is not ultimately caused by circumstances. Discontentment instead 
comes from inside. It's a heart issue. And we talked about how discontentment can be described sort of like a river that flows through our lives, fed by the three prime tributaries of greed, envy, and pride. And then we talked about, if you go back even further to the headwaters, so to speak, you see that fundamentally, discontentment is a theological issue in which we have allowed something, anything, to take its place on the throne of our life other than God. So that was our first sermon, talking about the problem of discontentment. And then in our second message, we, we sort of dug a little deeper and we talked about how uh, there are several ways that people have tried to deal with or anesthetize themselves to the lack of contentment. And after examining those things and why they come up short, we looked at the three real keys to unlocking the secret of contentment. We talked about how the first key was uh, that joy and contentment are related to each other. If you pursue your joy, you're pursuing your contentment. And we talked about that at length. Then we talked about that contentment is out there, implying that we need to recognize that we can't just conjure up the mojo. The problem is internal. The fix comes from the application of an external remedy to my internal situation. And so we talked about appropriating and owning and fleshing out all of the glorious riches that Christ purchased for us and has given to us in the Holy Spirit. And then the third key was to reflect upon how is it that Christ strengthens us to look at every circumstance as his calling for us. So those were the two sermons, and then I was gone for study leave, and now we're back. And what I want to do today to sort of tie it all up and, 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 and bring it home is to preach a very, what I hope will be, practical sermon regarding how do we cultivate contentment. I'm not going to pretend that I'm some magic fairy going to sprinkle pixie dust on you and you're going to leave here overflowing with contentment. Because it is a discipline. Anything good in life takes work. And you're going to have to work on developing, appropriating what Christ has done for you to become content. But there are, like many things in life, some little tips, some, some, some hints that we can pass along that will, that will make it a little easier for you. And so I want to make suggestions in three categories. The three categories are First, delight in the knowledge of God. Second, devote yourself to Jesus. And third, drain those tributaries. So, delight in the knowledge of God. Devote yourself to Jesus. Drain those tributaries. Delight in the knowledge of God. That's the first one. Now, when we say delight in the knowledge of God, when we say delight in it, I don't mean that, that you have this bookshelf full of things you like, and oh yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, so I, I gotta say I like learning about God or knowing about God, so he's one of those things on, those, on that bookshelf. No, when I say delight in the knowledge of God, and I'm referencing the, the verb of delight, I mean, make it the thing that is your go-to source of happiness. It is your prime interest. 
Sort of like one of the things I delight in is bacon. A second is, unto, is like it, spam. I love bacon and spam. I have it up until recently every day. And I will confess to you that eating a pound and a half of bacon a week has bad consequences for you. And so, you know, I delight in that. And I keep thinking about it. And I have this woman in my life who tells me, if you want to stay alive, you have to cut that out. And so I have to back off of it. But I keep thinking about how much I would love a thick bacon and spam sandwich. Okay. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But the point is, I really think about that. But how often do we spend our time thinking about the things of God? Sometimes we'll compartmentalize God and the things of God and say, oh, this has relevance to this part of my life, but not to everything. When, when something comes up, we don't automatically think, how would God have me respond? Or how is who God is able to address how I should think and feel and act in this situation? Many times, one of the issues we face is that we simply don't think that we need to grow in knowledge of God and His ways. Two verses that come to my mind that I love uh, are 2 Peter 3.18 in which he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians 1.9 and 10, well, just reading verse 10, it says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, that is our calling, to increase in the knowledge of God. Why is it so important to increase in the knowledge of God? Because you won't look at the world through a Christianly perspective if your mind isn't being filled with the correct thoughts. When a young person joins the military, I don't care what branch it is, you are faced with a culture shock because you come from an environment where you're thinking like a civilian and then you go into the military and there's just a different way of thinking. And you have 8, 12 weeks to learn how to think differently. And they're going to work very hard to help you learn how to think differently. And so they fill your mind with a different way of thinking. And those people who refuse to adjust, they never get used to military life and, and they kind of wash out. But so many Christians live a life of discontentment because they have never learned enough about God and His ways to think differently about their circumstance. Because, let's be honest, God's plan and God's way sounds pretty counterintuitive to someone who approaches things from an earthly perspective. I think the classic example takes place in Mark 8. In Mark 8, verses 31 to 33, Jesus, uh, he begins to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And, as he, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, so Jesus is sitting there expounding on God's wonderful plan for his life. 
And it includes getting rejected, beaten, and killed. Now, from an earthly perspective, remember where Jesus is at in his ministry. He's on the precipice of success. He's right there on the pinnacle. The crowds love him. People love him. And people are thinking, hey, he might in fact become the king we're looking for to drive out Rome. Success looks like coronation. Success looks like accolades and acceptance and applause and being able to impose your will on your environment. And so Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be killed. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? And Peter rebukes him. What are you talking about? And Jesus rebukes him, saying, get behind me, Satan. Wow. Wow. He wasn't really saying that Peter is the devil or that Peter was possessed. But what, it, what, what, what did he mean by that when he called Peter Satan? Well, Satan is the one who is in fundamental opposition to the plan and purpose of God. In other words, God's plan and purpose, what success looked like, was going to the cross. To be opposed to going to the cross then is to be functioning, functioning as an agent of the one who opposes God's purposes. Now, it's impossible to think along those lines unless you have learned that the ways of God are contrary to human reasoning. It is hard to think about your circumstance as being a positive thing or something that God can use for positive ends if we approach our circumstance from the vantage point and perspective of what the world has taught us to view success, happiness, contentment, meaningfulness to be. It'll be impossible. So devote yourself, dedicate yourself, and delight in the knowledge of God. Study Him. Study His ways. Study how counterintuitive the kingdom works. Study the ethics of the kingdom where bearing up under iniquity, bearing up faithfully under difficulty is the prime virtue, you would think. Instead of making change happen so that way you can be happy. If you want to learn contentment, the first step is delighting in the knowledge of God. If you don't delight in that knowledge, you will never learn to think Christianly. And if you don't learn to think Christianly, you will never learn to reassess your circumstances. Okay? So delight in the knowledge of God. So three quick things you can do to increase your knowledge of the God. One, read the Bible. There is no substitute. Read the Bible. Listen to the Bible. If you're driving and you can't read, there are, you can hear the Bible read to you. Read the Bible. I would also suggest read the reflections of other Christians, both those who have gone before and those who are contemporary to you. You need both perspectives because everyone is historically... Uh, has historical blinders on. I mean, we, we're, we're constrained by time and space. So everyone writes according to their perspective, but sometimes perspectives miss something. So, so read the past and the present. But also read the works of those who are applying Scripture to the realities of life. For example, the works of Francis Schaeffer. 
He applies Christian dogma to the arts, to politics, to, to, to recreation, to, to everything. Learn to apply Scripture to all of your life. And third, learn to love the Word of God as your sole source of hope for knowing the will of God. If you believe that human reason or experience can tell you what God wants you to do, you're setting yourselves up to be misled. The Bible is our authority, okay? So you got to grow in the knowledge of God, but to do that, you got to delight in the knowledge of God. The second thing is devote yourself to Jesus. We become devoted to Jesus as we increasingly become aware of the things of God, and so we see ourselves more fully. Once you see how depraved you are, once you see how fully you deserve judgment, then all of a sudden Jesus' work for you on the cross seems more amazing. Grace seems special when you see that you didn't deserve it. And devotion to Jesus doesn't just mean belief in Him. It means that we see ourselves in light of Him so that the pursuit of Him and of His purpose and plan takes importance, a place of importance to us. I think the marriage analogy is helpful here. When we say that one spouse is devoted to the other, he's a devoted husband, she's a devoted wife, we mean more than simply that they were faithful to them physically, don't we? When someone is a devoted spouse, it implies that they are trying to act in such a way that we give them attention, that we act in their best interests, that we're, making, that we're trying to make them seem important to us. It's about pursuing a course of affairs that leads to them understanding that they are important. Does Jesus have a place of importance in your life? Now, for Paul, who's writing these words that he's learned the secret of contentment, we've already seen that for him, Jesus is everything. Whether I live or I die, I just want to glorify Jesus. So if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. Anything else that I could pursue, I lose when I die. But if I pursue Jesus, then when I die, I only get more of him. So I'm a winner. If you want to have the grounding to look at your trying circumstances as being something positive, then recognize that your life is a life that is meant to be lived on mission for Jesus because when you love someone, the thing that's important to them in some way becomes important to you, right? And what is important to Jesus? We could fill in the blanks. But chiefly, making his gospel known is important to Jesus. So in every circumstance our king calls you, he has placed you as his ambassador to represent him in that moment, in that place. Remember how we talked about Paul using that military term? He's, a, he's under orders. His circumstance is his duty assignment. Well, because he's devoted to Jesus, and what is important to Jesus is important to him. He's able to do that. So when you get that bad diagnosis, how will God have you minister in his name to those 
pagan doctors or nursing staff or the people you're going to meet in the clinic or to your family members who have no hope. And here's your opportunity to model hope in a living God to resurrect your body from the grave. Or when you're in a difficult relationship and all the heathen around you would say, just leave. Then you get to model because Jesus has put you there for a purpose. No, this is what faithfulness looks like. I could go on and on about children and grandchildren who depart the faith. But I think you get the point. So, here are some ways I think we can live out our devotion to Jesus. We were united to Him. United. And so we are to be holy as He is holy. We learn that in 1 Peter 1.15. He who called you is holy, so be holy. Remember, you're his ambassador in your circumstance. Second, you were not saved by your good works. But according to Ephesians 2.15, we were in fact saved for good works. So he who called you has called you to be holy, but he's called you then to model good works in whatever trying circumstance life has you. And third... We are to honor Christ as holy and separate, and so we are, to, we are to be prepared to speak well of him for anyone who asks. And we learn that from 1 Peter 3.15. So we have a set of scriptures that point in the same direction, that we are always ready. We are always ready to do a good work for someone who needs it, where we are always ready to speak a good word about Jesus, where we're always ready to model the holiness of God. Why? Because it's important to Jesus. And I love Jesus. He saved me from all my sins and has promised me an eternity of delight in Him. And since I love Jesus, because He loved me first, what's important to Him will be important to me. And speaking of something that's important to Jesus, did you guys know that the people of God are important to Jesus? Oftentimes we think of the world, we need to evangelize the world, and we do, we do. But Paul, in Galatians 6.10, or 6.10, sorry, he kind of lays it out for us in such a way that if we have to make a choice, we're to do good to the people of God. Do good to all people, but especially those of the household of faith. You see, when you were united to Christ and I was united to Christ, we became family. And yeah, family fight, family fights. I mean, not a, hardly a day goes by when my kids aren't fighting, and I'd be surprised if your kids are any different. But at the end of the day, Family takes care of their family, right? And so if, do, be prepared to do good to all people. But if, but, but if circumstance presses you to it, pursue the good of the people of God. Jesus cares about the people of God. Remember in Acts 9 when, when Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my followers? Is that what he says? 
No. Why are you persecuting me? If you are in the household of faith, Jesus takes attacks on you personally. So the people of God are important to God, so they ought to be important to us. So, a second way then to grow and cultivate contentment in us is to dedicate and devote ourselves to Jesus. So that way we are filled with a passion for what is important to Him, ready to see ourselves as His ambassadors in any circumstance. So delight in the knowledge of God, devote yourself to Jesus, and lastly, we got to drain those tributaries. In 1959, Walt Disney bought 47 square miles of Central Florida swamp. And he famously said, drain it. And he drained that swamp. He redirected rivers. He, he, he built lakes. He, he did the whole thing. He, he drained 47 square miles of swamp and built Disney World. Okay? Sometimes we just need to do the hard work of draining those tributaries. Remember the tributaries that I spoke of, pride, envy, and greed. You are going to have a hard time thinking it's important to drain them or even identifying that you have in fact placed an idol on your heart if you are not doing the very first thing, which is delighting in the knowledge of God. So that's fundamental, okay? I'm trying to move from head to heart to hands. So you have to grow in your knowledge. And as you grow in your knowledge, let that increase your love and affection. And then as you've increased your knowledge and affection, let it impact what you're doing. But we need to drain the tributaries. So what, some, some suggestions I think that we can have. To battle our pride, we've got to remember what God says. We brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out. You think you deserve something great. You know what you deserve? Death. We get all offended Oh, when, when, when I offend someone, it's a little thing. And I, I, I have no right to, or you have no right to be angry at me for long. But if you do something against me, oh, that's a big thing. And I'm going to hold on to it for a long time. And you're going to be lucky if I forgive you. That's what pride tells us, isn't it? Pride tells us that it's entirely reasonable that you accommodate me. And entirely unreasonable that you think that I should accommodate you. Pride is a killer. But we need to remember all the metaphors that Scripture used for us in our life, vapor, mist, grass, dust, catching the theme here, <laughs> we are small, small. And anything that you have has indeed been given to you and entrusted to you by a sovereign God for His sovereign purposes. So whenever you feel pride welling up in your heart or, or making you want to react and respond, I am dust speaking to dust. From one bit of vapor to another, let me tell you, pride kills, okay? So battle your pride, drain that. Second, to battle your envy. Okay, we love looking at other people's lawns, don't we? We love looking over that fence and seeing other people's lot in life. But did you know that when God gave you the circumstances 
And when God gave that person their circumstances, He gave to each, He allotted to each the troubles they face. And oftentimes we only look at the apparent blessings of the other person's lot, but we don't recognize the difficulties that that person's lot has brought upon them. And so we oftentimes look at this better job. I remember back when I was a dirt poor, I think our, I, have, I saved our tax record from when we were first married. Dirt, dirt, poor. I mean, I think it was like, I think our adjusted gross was like $11,000. Now you may think that's not poor. Well, hey, whatever. It's all relative. Well, by the time I left the army, I was, I was making nearly eight times that. Nine times that, maybe. But I wasn't nine times happier. Because without all that extra money came extra troubles and problems. Don't spend your time looking at someone else's lot, thinking, oh, they have it so much better. Because God has, in fact, spared you from the challenges they face. Your troubles are sufficient to what God has called you. And their troubles, you will never experience. That's a tremendous mercy. And by the way, your circumstance and your envying of someone else's circumstance does not ultimately affect God's calling on your life for faithfulness. Think about John 21. Okay, Jesus reinstates Peter. Peter's denied him three times and Jesus you know, does the threefold, do you love me? Yes, 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 feed my sheep. And then what does Jesus tell Peter? He says, hey, when you're old, someone's going to take you where you don't want to go. And he tells him how he's going to die. Okay, so he's just unfolded his wonderful plan for his life. And Peter's like, well, and he looks back at John. What, what about him, Lord? And what does Jesus say? What is that to you? If I allow him to live until I return, what is that to you? And then he looks back at Jesus and says, only you follow me. Jesus' plan for John was different than Jesus' plan for Peter. And Jesus' plan for John was not Peter's concern. Peter's concern was to walk faithfully in the path that Jesus had laid out for him. How often do we waste our time and squander our opportunities because we're busy worrying about John and his plan? Be faithful. Be faithful. So, then we turn to greed. Oh, we want more, don't we? How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. How big of a house is enough? Oh, just a couple square feet more. How fast is fast enough? Oh, just a little bit faster. God has given you what you need. And recognize that when you say you want more, what you're saying is that I am not able to find myself in what God's plan has revealed for me. Drain that greed. Drain that envy. Drain that pride. And as you increasingly do so, 
that devotion you have for Jesus will manifest itself in such a way that on top of that former swamp, you will begin to erect what is in fact a magical kingdom. And it'll be a source of delight and joy. And like at Disney, they continue to have to deal with that with the tributaries, don't they? They continue to they, they have systems in place. And that's a good picture for you and me because we are sinners and we will struggle all of our life. But the good news is that as we delight in the knowledge of God, as we grow in our Christian perspective and outlook, as our devotion for Christ increases, we will find it easier to say no to discontent. We'll find it easier to redirect those tributaries so that way they don't flow through our life. It'll be easier for us. And that's the beauty of God's promise to sanctify us, is it not? So, in this short little mini-series, we've tried to look at contentment. It's out there. It's possible. Will you have it? Will you recognize that the discontentment you feel is not because of your circumstances? It's because of your heart. And will you recognize that what Jesus has done for you is sufficient? And he, if you appropriate that, you can have it. And will you take steps to pursue contentment and cultivate it in your heart, knowing that it is a discipline that will take a lifetime to master? Will you do it? That is my prayer for you. Let's pray.